0: And this is a K Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. This is Andreas. I am one of the writers and the founder, actually, of Films Fatale. Um, I love international and art house cinema, but I love a little bit of everything in between. Who else is here?
1: I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. I love lost film and I adore international cinema as well.
2: James here, concert creator. Produce and release music under the AS Booty Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I also sometimes contribute to Films Fatale. And uh, this episode is my pick, and I thought it might be fun to do another Pride Month episode like we've been doing every year since Inception. So one year. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, our streak <laughs> is going strong. <laughs> yeah, we did one last year, so we got to keep it up.
1: Perfect. Okay, so how is this going to look then?
2: Okay, so I thought it would be fun to pick for the first half a film that we thought just overall does a good job at representing the LGBTQ plus community. And then the second half would be a singular performance that really stood out to us of an actor playing a gay character in a movie.
0: Sounds good to me. Yeah. I feel like, um, first off, this is a, this is a very important type of episode. Um, uh, but secondly, it opens up so many possibilities because uh, not only do we have a lot of contemporary LGBTQ plus cinema that's noteworthy but uh, so many you know so many years over time where a lot of voices were being silenced um, a lot of art wasn't being celebrated because of uh, you know injustice we get to possibly shed light on a lot of that uh, what you know furthermore and I feel like uh, any opportunity to do so is always a warranted one
1: and I think we'll all approach it in very different ways because that's what we tend to do
0: yeah because we have such uh we have, we have some overlap, but in case it's not obvious, we have such startlingly different tastes in film, but we're also very open minded. So I feel like, yeah, I feel we're going to cover a lot of ground.
1: All right. Well, shall we get started then? Yeah.
0: Uh, James, this is your episode. Do you want to begin with uh, which film you, you selected?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll go. So, you know. It, it, it wouldn't be an episode of the K Cut, specifically a Pride one, if I did not talk about Greg Araki.
0: Ah, yes. like <laughs> oh, yes.
2: One of the quintessential gay filmmakers of in history. And uh, I decided to go with uh, his first entry in what is known as the Teenage Apocalypse trilogy, which is totally effed up. And I did censor a certain word because we like to keep it family friendly. And. I think it, it's a it's a really interesting movie. It just kind of chronicles the it, kind of somewhat dysfunctional lives of a, a group of queer kids who kind of form this family unit, and it's done in a way that's like because it's kind of broken up into vignettes. It's like this really kind of avant-garde experimental film meets a John Hughes flick. So it's it's he takes the John Hughes approach of like highlighting a group of kids, just their everyday lives and just the struggles they go through, and it's really cool to see because you know it's just. This group of people who, you know, you know, you don't really deal with too much adversity, but you just kind of see how they live their lives and how they interact with each other. And it, it's kind of fun to see this representation because it's not trying to tone anything down. Like it gets kind of weird at moments, but I mean, I, I think that's all in the spirit of people being themselves. And I think, you know, like with all Gregor Rocky movies, he's, he was very much a trailblazer back then. And I think honestly, Like, I like to say he made movies for the wrong decades. Because I think a lot of his stuff would really be successful even more so now, like, on a commercial level. Like, if you did something like a Nowhere or, like, a Splendor now, I guarantee, like, if you had somebody like A24 produce it, it would be a hit. But it would also resonate with, like, you know, a crowd that would actually feel seen through movies like this. It was also the introduction of James Duvall, who was the star who is like one of the main leads in all three of these movies in this trilogy. Yeah. I just think it's a, you know, I think it's a very important film because it does touch on certain issues of just, I think just being queer in society and kind of living your life and, you know, the people that you can come across who would actually accept you. And yeah, I don't know. It's a family. uh, yeah, yeah, it's the whole chosen family thing because you know a lot of people in that community kind of have to. They thrive on their chosen family, especially if they're like you know ousted from their own family, actual families. Absolutely. And eventually, I will have one of you watch it for a smorgasbord at some point.
0: <laughs> we're gonna run out of his films at this point. Yeah, we're
1: gonna get through the entire filmography.
2: That's the idea. <sighs> uh, just, just as a,
0: you know, as a. You know, precaution, I've already seen his film with Shane Lynn Woodley, the uh, white bird on the blizzard or whatever it's called. So if you're thinking of that one, James, uh, <laughs> anything that I haven't seen that you already know of but that one. So <laughs> we're going to go through them one by one otherwise. Um, no, but but to go back to your point, uh, yeah, I feel like Iraqi is really, really prominent in his field because, you know, at the time it was this... Um, this aggressively progressive type of filmmaking, which was a very common for that wave. Um, and similarly to his contemporaries, these work not just as, uh, you know, like time capsules of what the era felt like, and especially him, his films are exceptionally like 90s and early 2000s feeling, but also what the state of, um, of how people were being perceived, how, um, th- how, how, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community with being treated um, from within the community, from with from outside of the community. So he certainly does have these, again, these time capsules.
1: And uh, unconventional families come up very frequently in his work. So it's interesting to see him go on that theme again.
2: Yeah, he definitely kind of hit this mark of, you know, kind of he these kind of, I don't know what to call him. He also has like little microcosms of, I don't know what to call it. It's like these communities. He honestly, he kind of does what, um, Harmony Corinne would do in his early works. Like it's not necessarily character driven. It's more so like a community aesthetic that drives the narrative. Cause it's not really dealing with like a singular person where they have their story arc. It's like, okay, here's a slice of life of many individuals and how they interact and perceive each other. And you know how they thrive or may, you know, or, or what kind of ails them
1: right that does come up in a lot of his films
0: as we now know thanks to thanks to smart sports yes fantastic uh Rachel what about you? what film did you go with?
1: I went with a documentary it's called *Sparuaban* or in English me and my little sister and it's by the documentary filmmaker Suvi West and It's about her sister, so she's very frequently featured in the documentary, but her sister is really the main person it's about. And it's about being gay in the Sami community, because the Sami community tends to run fairly conservative in a lot of quarters, so homophobia could be a real issue. And so this woman, the sister Kaisa, is struggling with her identity as being lesbian and her Sami identity and also her Christianity because she's a fairly conservative Christian and a deacon in the church. And so it's how she reconciles all these different sides of herself. And Suvi is not only directing, but in the film as this supportive sister. So you've got this lovely sibling relationship and you've got this woman who really comes into her own over the course of the documentary. And I saw it screened at Ska Magovat. It was the premiere and it was kind of one of the highlights of the festival and it was a really emotional experience for a lot of the town.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, you always have access to a lot of these, like, a lot a lot of these, like, unheard of films that, um, you know, make these for a festival circuit. A lot of them are, are you know, slices of, of international life. Uh,
1: yeah, it's not easily accessible outside of Finland, as far as I can tell, unfortunately.
0: Ah, uh, that's too bad.
1: But it is really beautiful. And part of it, oddly enough, takes place in Toronto. So there you go.
0: Ah, there you go. You said it was a short, correct?
1: Uh, no, it's not really a short. It's an hour and ten, roughly.
0: Okay, so it's like a shorter film, but it's not a short. Okay.
1: Yeah, but uh, just I would really recommend checking it out. It's really heartwarming, and it asks some very difficult questions.
0: I would, uh, yeah, given the opportunity, if it's uh, accessible in any in any realm, I, I would love to. Um, what are some other selling points about it?
1: I would say mostly how deeply it dives into these two characters, the sister and, well, the two sisters. And I guess it's just an aspect of being gay that isn't really explored in films a lot because it's a community that doesn't appear on film a lot. So it's something you really haven't seen before. And for the Sami community, I think it was quite revolutionary.
0: I feel like that's going to just keep happening time and time again. We're going to keep getting perspectives that we've never analyzed before. Like I'll never forget when Moonlight was such a coveted project by Barry Jenkins because while homo um, homosexuality and homophobia were being uh, tackled at large in cinema by this point and um, the specific communities that Jenkins was talking about, that was pretty new. And even since these last six years have passed, we've seen a lot of films that have been inspired or, you know, influenced films or TV shows influenced by what was going on in Moonlight. And I can't help but think that's like, you know, this film that you've brought up, amongst with many others waiting to be told, if they're also gonna be, you know, the ones to break the doors down, so more similar tales are gonna come through and we're gonna see so many different perspectives that again we're being we're being shunned and and locked away before.
1: And you know, both uh Sparuaban and Moonlight came out in twenty sixteen and I think the world has really, really changed a lot since, even though it's only been six years. I, when I look back at 2016, it feels like a completely different time.
2: Right? Oh it's yeah, definitely. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting when you bring, like, you bring up Blue Light and you bring up this one. I think it's it's really interesting when you put it against like white America and queerness because it seems like there's such like a hyper progressiveness to it to where it's like getting so normalized. But when you get outside of those communities, it starts to, you know, there's still this repression even to this day. And then even in international, like internationally, other countries still, this is, it's such a thing that's still so taboo because a lot of places that are so rooted in tradition just will not allow it to permeate this, the framework that they've already set up.
1: And there's still lots of censorship for art and things like that, that depict LGBTQ relationships.
0: I mean, by the time that we're recording this, that uh, Pixar Lightyear film is coming out, I think, like, tomorrow night. Um, and that's being, like, bit, you know, censored, banned, you know, creating this this big uproar because there's apparently, like, you know, some small subplots invo- involving homosexuality or something to that effect. And I, I just think it's astonishing that it's creating... Again, like an uproar or such a pessimistic, hostile response. And again, the fact that countries are willing to ban this film. You know, this or like, I'll never forget that Beauty and the Beast film. Literally because one character was holding hands with somebody of the same sex. And I think it was that's ridiculously
1: crazy. brief, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was like literally like a shot. Like a brief shot. And that was an
2: uproar.
1: You could miss it if you were looking at your popcorn.
2: Yeah. So so the problem with the Disney and the Beauty and the Beast thing, it was – I think if I remember correctly, I think the filmmakers, if not – if it was just the director, was implying or basically saying that LeFou was a repressed homosexual and he was just – and and a lot of his character was like dealing with his feelings that he has for Gaston, even though it's like – there are some the, – the moments that they showed were kind of moments that were already in the movie anyway, but I think that that was just kind of – I think he was trying to pander and it backfired – Cause I remember there was a lot of discourse about that. Like it was specifically supposed to be like LGBTQ friendly moment, but that's been happening a lot with Disney. And there's a lot of discourse coming from like conservatives, like being rallying against Disney now because they think they're pushing some forceful gay agenda. Just because of, you know, we finally reached a point where we can actually, you know, include people and well it's normalized. They're like, Oh, well there's gay characters and everything now. It's like, yeah, there's gay people everywhere. Like this isn't anything new.
1: Also, it's not responsible to portray anyone having a crush on Gaston. That guy's a jerk.
2: <laughs> That's, I mean, but they've been doing
0: that since the 90s. I mean, all these people True. falling over him. I, I I, don't get it myself. I don't get it myself. But, I mean, yay, well, who am I to judge? Uh, so, um, you know, to, to tie these two points kind of together, um, it still feels like while we're making a lot of ground and we're Opening a lot of voices and Toronto, um, Rachel, you can attest to this. We see a lot of this with stuff like Inside Out Festival, um, and so many other festivals like Imaginative, um, include like stories about, like, you know, homosexual discovery, LGBTQ, um, you know, communities. But while there is so much progression, I still feel like there's a lot of room to gross still and at the same time there's a lot of different tribulations to combat and it it, it does break my heart at the same time
1: yeah um and since filmmaking is now basically easier than ever i think we're going to be seeing many 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 more stories told and from perspectives we've never even imagined
2: there's no excuse not to make a movie nowadays you can shoot them on an iphone like
0: uh, sean baker that's not the uh, filmmaker i'm going to be going with but uh, you know case in point you know something like tangerine is something that comes to mind
1: well, which film are you going with, Andreas?
0: Well, I'm going with something a little bit more on the nose, but it is um, one of my all time favorite films. If it's not in my top 10, it's like unquestionably in my top 15. Um, I've probably brought it up on the pod before. I'm actually losing track of what we have selected for the smorgasbord, so I don't even I don't know even if we've lost it. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know,
0: I don't even know if I've like championed this film to death before. Anyway. Um, in my top ten favorite filmmakers of all time is Pedro Moldovar. So I obviously have to go with All About My Mother, which I feel like is just, uh, again, one of the greatest films of the 90s. Simply put, one of the greatest films I've ever seen. But it's not just a fantastic film because it's pro-feminism and pro-women. Um, first off, have we done this for the uh, smorgasbord? Because I'm losing track at this point. <laughs> no, I don't believe we, we have. Okay, have either of you seen it? I have not. No, me either. Well, I'm starting to get some ideas for uh, <laughs> maybe future iterations. But, okay, nonetheless, um, I don't want to say too much about the story because Omotovar is so, so good at creating, like, even if it's not a mystery film, like, a sense of discovery in his pictures and, you know, more and more stuff getting unraveled. Don't want to really give away too, too much about that. But basically, in a more vague sense, all about my mother – is exactly what it sounds like. It's a celebration of women of all walks of life, um, from you know all generations, all ideologies. And that also includes, which is quite progressive for its time back in uh, the late 90s, um, a transgender character. Um, actually, uh, multiple transgender characters, but but one specifically, um, uh, the character named Agrado, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, whose uh whose own personal journey she's not the main character the main character is an actual mother who um uh, a mother who loses her son and she's grieving and she basically goes on like this this soul-searching journey uh she stumbles upon a number of people including Penelope Cruz who plays like a nun but uh, anyway to go back to this character uh this is another element of what it's like to be a maternal character a woman a sister uh you know, in this day and age. And it's such a beautiful character arc because she's often, you know, the target of malice throughout the film. But watching her own personal growth and the finding of her own self worth, self worth inside of herself is just, it's one of my favorite elements of the film. And there's like a climactic part, which I don't want to spoil, that gets me tearing up every time. So, that for me was like a must that I, I felt like I had to discuss this film. And Pedro himself has been um, somebody who has discussed so many different elements of queer storytelling um, throughout his entire filmography. So I felt like he was a must to bring up as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Like that, that is absolutely on brand for you. And it makes sense totally in the context of his career.
0: Yeah, I, and again, uh, kind of like you are with Greg uh, I and, and you with uh, Catherine Hepburn, um, I feel like I, I shoehorn in a lot of my personal favorites, but Pedro's one of them. Yeah, Pedro's one of them where it's like, at any instance I can, I'll be like, hell yes, I'm bringing up Pedro Motivar. Um But yeah, like his works in general are extremely um, forward-thinking You know, when it comes to genre-bending, when it comes to some more sensitive stuff like i know his his stuff in the late 80s early 90s when he was finally making some waves over here in north america he was kind of seen as like this controversial guy um maybe uh completely misinterpreting what he was doing with his edgier works but you know regardless there are so many other films that i could apply to like this particular this particular topic, uh, Bad Education, comes to mind. Obviously, Pain and Glory, which is autobiographical, so there's a lot of Pedro evaluating himself in this film. You could just keep going. But again, I'm going to stick with All About My Mother because uh, in general, I think it's, a, it's an amazing film. But when it comes to the topic of um, you know, people who struggle with AIDS, transgender identities, so many different things that are pertinent to this topic, it's, it's a brilliant film
1: well I'll have to check it out as we say over at the K-Cup.
0: And if you don't <laughs> you you will have to if you know what I mean. For those who uh, haven't tuned into the show before, we run a series called the Cinematic Marcus Board where we recommend films to one another and we have to watch them. So case in point, uh, you might have a future pick both of y'all. Anyway, before we get down that rabbit hole, we should probably start celebrating some of these uh, some of these performers who have done a lot for the LGBTQ plus community. So James, what say you?
2: I decided to go with uh, Sean Penn's performance as Harvey Milk in Milk.
1: Oh, I love that movie.
2: And I think it's obviously the story of Harvey Milk is obviously a lot more nuanced and complex than this movie like was able to present. But I think just the importance of somebody, he was the first openly gay public official elected public official in california when he became a member of the san francisco board of supervisors and just to see just this portrayal of someone with such a legacy and someone who is very forward-thinking and trying to like push the boundaries for the gay community to be accepted and then just his unfortunately untimely death it's just very inspiring to see individuals like that in history it's like you know they they don't ask for much, but to be accepted, and yet the you know those who are not like them seem to want to destroy them because of their own insecurities or whatever their perceived values are that don't agree with what's going on. It also is a situation that gave birth to one of the most ridiculous defenses in like legal history that is just infuriating. So for those who don't know, the man who
1: the Twinkie defense.
2: Yes, as Rachel said, it's known as the Twinkie defense. The person who murdered him, they came up with this argument that um, because he was his uh, competition, and since he lost, he was in a depression, and then his diet of junk food caused a chemical imbalance in his brain that caused him to commit murder, even though it wasn't a crime of passion because he actually snuck into the building the back way that no one else really knew about, and it was all planned, and yeah. But, you know, just to see... um, you know, just the portrayals of how, like, you know, they pulled off, you know, the campaign and, you know, just to, just to see the early days of them trying to, you know, him getting the inspiration to actually run for public office. It's like, you know, I I feel like we're still at a point where it's like we still don't quite have that many people in office from this community. And I think we could, you know, we could be electing more.
1: What I liked about the film was how it portrayed the community activism, so not just Milk, but all the other people around him and how they all worked together and got on the campaign, and it was really inspiring.
0: I feel like that's a testament to Gus Van Sand, who, uh, like Greg Garaki is very interested in, um, you know, the LGBTQ plus community itself, and not necessarily just the uh, figureheads that a lot of people would know. So, like, Harvey Milk was was a very recognizable figure but it feels like I wanted to go even further and be like okay no like here's so many other people that are worth loving knowing about um, that were all by his side for instance
2: oh yeah his team like any any moments he had with his like you know team were just great because you know they all had you know they all had this bond that couldn't be broken no matter what the odds were also a great supporting cast
1: oh yeah oh yeah
0: Absolutely. I also want to give a quick shout out. Uh, I feel like this film, which is under discussed, quite frankly, so the fact that you brought it up, I'm uh, I'm pretty happy with. It's one of my favorite Gus Van Tan films, quite frankly. Um, I feel like this film goes perfectly with... An obvious choice: The Times of Harvey Milk by Rob Epstein, uh, narrated by one Harvey Firestein. It's a brilliant documentary, one of the best documentaries of the '80s, as far as I'm concerned. It's pretty much the same subject matter, but basically straight from straight from the source. So you're seeing like actual footage of of Harvey Milk, uh, pretty much like down to his final days, and uh, you see a little bit of like the actual like trial and aftermath as well. And yeah, yeah, it also Give you a bit of uh, perspective as to um, possibly how Sean Penn won Best Actor because I know that's a bit of a, a bit of a polarizing win over Mickey Rourke for the wrestler, which I would have preferred as well. But at the same time, you watch these two films together and you're like, "Damn, Sean Penn's uncanny! Like he 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 like is absolutely Harvey Milk in this film." Yeah,
2: I just thought it was. Uh... Yeah, because it's like, you know, there's only it's like there's only certain actors who can play certain roles. And I think, you know, Sean Penn was the pick for this. I just think his portrayal was, you know, it's, it's it's something that could be studied.
1: And he captured so much of the man's warmth and humor. And he really created a fully realized character from a real person, which is so hard to do.
0: Yeah, that is true. Absolutely. What about you, Rachel? Which performance are you going with?
1: I went with a real-life person as well, and this was Taron Egerton as Elton John in Rocketman. But it's a bit of an interesting pick because Elton John himself is not only still alive and was alive for the movie, he was quite heavily involved in it. So I'm sure he had quite a lot of say in the casting and what was put in the movie. And so the film is very, very honest about John's life, Um I think I've read his autobiography, it was not the film I don't think was directly based on the autobiography, but it's basically the same material. And John is very honest about how much he had to grow as a person as as a young adult, and even into his 40s and 50s, and how he didn't always behave the way he might have wanted to, and he struggled a lot with addiction and just this whole journey that he went on. And so Egerton is not only playing a very famous, very real person. He is also singing. He did his own singing, which I'm amazed he even attempted. And he also has to go on this enormous trajectory from, you know, young men wandering around the UK to superstar who's dealing with his demons to someone who's finally at peace with himself. And I think he did a wonderful job. He was actually a viable candidate for best actor that year. And I think he didn't miss out by much. And the best thing about it is that John got to see the results of the film and got to see this performance so praised. And Eagerton got to ride off the success of it. And it just seems like it was a really great interaction between all the parties, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and then Elton John also, uh, obviously with, um, oh my goodness, what's his writing partner's name again?
1: Toppin, Bernie Toppin.
0: There we go, thank you. Elton John uh was actually writing original stuff with uh, Bernie Tolpin obviously um
1: oh, won the Oscar
0: It did win the Oscar. Okay? I knew it was nominated. I just could not remember, but I mean that's uh, that's a kind of full circle moment there. So um yeah, and you're right. It does dive in a little little harshly into John's life and his addictions and everything. Uh for for me personally, um I would say that um Rami Malik was was better as as Freddie Mercury, but only because he was like brilliant. But outside of that alone, I feel like Rocket Man was kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody, but more polished, more tight, a little better. Yeah, it
1: was. It gets compared to Bohemian Rhapsody a lot, and I think it is the better film. Um, but I disagree with you. I think Egerton could stand toe-to-toe with Malik. It's tough,
0: though, because he does a
1: great We're job. They're both great. Yeah,
0: he, he does an excellent
1: job. Um, Wasn't
2: the director of Rocket Man the replacement director for Bohemian Rhapsody, though? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember that being a thing, and everybody was comparing, and I was like, it kind of makes sense, because while the Bohemian Rhapsody was was... That was originally Brian Singer at first, right? And then he got booted?
1: Yeah. Also, I'm still bitter. Rhapsody won Best Editing because that was the biggest crock that year.
0: <laughs> if only we could edit that out of history. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, we don't need to reflect on that. Back to Rocket Man. Uh, <laughs> um, what makes me sad though is that Joel Edgerton. Oh, sorry, uh, Taryn Edgerton. Sorry, wrong one. Um, what makes me sad is that Taron Edgerton won the Golden Globe. I'm pretty sure for uh, Musical Comedy Best Actor. But yeah, he. He didn't actually make it to the Academy Awards, which I feel like I can't remember off the top of my head who he's up against. He was was he up against uh, Joaquin Phoenix that year, or?
1: Uh, it was 2019, so yeah, that would have been Phoenix. Okay, I don't think
0: he would have won, but he could have definitely given him a bit of a run. I would say.
1: I think he could have slipped in at number five pretty easily, but that, I think that I remember that being a, a stacked year. But this was also just before COVID, so all the memories are blurred into one sort of mess
0: yeah I remember going to the theater on my girlfriend's a big fan of Taron Edgerton and yeah you know we saw this in cinemas and yeah like everybody was like it was a stacked packed theater Uh, everybody was like dancing to the credits it was like it was it was a different time (laughs) that's certainly not really happening anymore but we're working our way there but yeah like uh, pre pre pre-pandemic times for sure
1: yeah, so let me just see who was nominated that year. It was
0: Adam Driver, Phoenix
1: Banderas, DiCaprio, Driver, and Price for for Joker, Paid a Glory, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Marriage Story, and The Two Popes. So yeah, I I get it. <laughs> I get why my Edgerton didn't sneak in. Uh,
0: those are all really good. Like my least favorite, my least favorite is Jonathan Price and Two Popes, But even then, he's really good like yeah
1: tough year very yeah. tough
0: year they could have uh pulled a, a bs move like they did with like keith stanfield and been like hey uh teron edgerton is is actually supporting actor in this because bernie Topin is actually the lead so who was yeah. it
2: like was to Bell? i think that's still baffled <laughs> that that happened
0: <laughs> yeah but i mean eh, you know academy awards be academy awards thing i don't know back on topic though uh any more to say about rocket man
1: No, just that I think it's really enjoyable, even if you're not a big Elton John fan. And uh, it was kind of underseen, so go check it out.
0: Yeah, I feel like if you, especially if you aren't an Elton John fan, you might not be privy to a lot of the goings on in his life. And he's had a pretty interesting life. So,
1: And he seems like a really cool dude, so I'd also recommend reading his memoir, because it's Really got a lot of great reflection in it, and I don't know, I would want to hang out with him, even if he wasn't Alan John, so there you go.
0: Deep down, I hope I make a buttload of money, and I feel like, um, while it's sad that things are getting postponed because of the pandemic, this constant stalling of his farewell tour, I feel like it's a sign, I feel like I just need to somehow make a ton of money, just go see this this farewell tour, because, yeah, I adore Goodbye Yellow Big Road as an album, it's a brilliant album. I feel like it's a call. Have
1: you seen him before? No, I've never. I've seen him twice.
0: Oh, you see? Like, okay, so how was it?
1: Oh, uh, well, I saw him first in Kelowna, my hometown, because uh, the rumor is his partner has family there, but I don't know whether that's actually true. So it was in a hockey arena, and it was it was good. It was a good show, but it was a hockey arena. And then I saw him in Moscow, and it was Ooh. right after they passed all those anti-LGBTQ laws. So everyone's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And he gave a really good speech, I think. Um, it was also in more of a theater setting, so it was just a nicer concert overall. But um, He gave a speech just about how he's always felt welcomed in Russia and he's very dismayed by these laws and he dedicated the concert to a man who had recently been killed for being gay. And he said, I want to make a better world for your children or for mine, but it's weird because I think most of the audience's reaction, you know, there was some cheering, there was some booing, but I think most people are like, okay, okay, hurry up, play Candle in the Wind now, go on, go.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, you know, uh- performers are people as well you know but i was glad he spoke out yeah exactly like at, at the same time you're paying to listen to what these artists are doing and I, I i i get it you're there for the music you're not there for the politics but at the same time i feel like it's a very important time and place for him to be able to comment on something that's obviously very near and dear to him so i i don't see why there should be such hostility
1: Anyway, he's phenomenal live, so I hope that tour does come back.
0: Oh please, I hope so. Anyway, um, I'm gonna hop over to my pick quickly. Um, I went with uh, something also contemporary. Um, my performance that I wanted to highlight, and I've done this before, and I shall, um, I shall do so again. Uh, Daniela Vega in a Fantastic Woman, which I feel like is um, not just a like a shockingly you know, heartbreaking performance. It's also uh, I feel like it's one that's already kind of slipping under people's radars again. I mean, it's been 5 years since A Fantastic Woman came out. If you, um if you haven't seen it Listeners at home, the basic premise is um uh, without like sugarcoating or or you know, being blasé about it too too much, but it's kind of like the day the, the day in the life of a transgender woman who suddenly has to deal with grief and a lot of personal relations and dealings. And, you know, for me, this film feels like the reminder of what a lot of people still have to deal with when it comes to emergencies, when it when it, when it comes to big life moments. Um, I feel like it's such an interesting angle because some people like to say, okay, you know, the community is able to be themselves or whatever, but that's also not necessarily true because there are so many countries, so many situations where people are dead-named, people are uh, forced to partake in things that they don't want to partake in. So many things, so many problematic things and ideologies and bigotries and um, vitriol that, that a lot of people still have to deal with. And this highlights a, like a huge amount of them in a very small amount of time.
1: Yeah, it's it's an incredible movie, and I'm really glad you selected it. Um, yeah, I think we, we also haven't paid a lot of attention really to trans people outside of your picks in this. So I think that it's good that that you've highlighted trans trans people and their particular struggles in each in each of your picks.
0: I I, I think it's important because a lot of people um, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing just so much, and one of the one of the things I want to do one day when I feel like I'm able to do so um i want to get off of social media i just see so much disgusting activity on there like when it comes to um how trans people who have come out are received how i just see so much so much unnecessary disgusting harassment pretty much and you know it it, it does break my heart and you know so many walks of life within these communities um are still dealing with this stuff so constantly, but something like a Fantastic Woman deals with this head on, and I know it was such a big deal that um, Daniela Vega was the first uh, transgender person to to host, or uh, yeah, like host like a, like one of the awards, at the Academy Awards. I don't remember what the category was, but I feel like it should have been one step further, not just as a statement, but because. I feel like she deserved it. I feel like she should have been flat out nominated as the first transgender performer for this performance.
1: The film did get a lot of attention, though. Like, it it won for Chile the International Film Oscar, which I think is great.
0: It did, but I feel like her performance itself is one of my favorites of the 2010s. Like, it's so heartbreaking, so real. Um, And I, I hate to view it this way, but I can't help but view it this way. I feel like a lot of this stems from what Danielle Vega herself has had to deal with. And what she's having to face again in, these fil- in this film. I feel like it's a very brave performance. Um, very, very challenging one. Like, I, I can't imagine a lot of people pulling it off, let alone actually facing it upright. Like, it's, it's a very challenging role. And she, she nails it, absolutely.
1: Well, I think it's a great pick.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Well... Thank you, listeners at home, for also uh, listening to our Pride episode. We're going to give some weekly recommendations, uh, but before we do that, we've got a little bit of housekeeping.
1: Right, so you can find us under the KCUT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and our picks for this month for Cinematic Smorgasbord are Following, that's the Christopher Nolan one, Tokyo Story, The Shootist, and as our collective, Atlantic Rhapsody.
0: Brilliant. So maybe let's go in the same order then. Uh, James, what do you want to shout out as your weekly recommendation?
2: Uh, I guess keeping a the theme with the episode, uh, I'm going to go with 1997's Chasing Amy by Kevin Smith. Okay. Uh, please, I, uh, do share more. Well, I picked it. I mean, for those who haven't seen it, and I'd be really surprised if you hadn't considered how old it is at this point. Uh, it's about a, um, comic book artist played by Ben Affleck who fa- falls in love with a bisexual woman played by Joey Lorna Adams. And it's kind of to the behest of his best friend who's played by Jason Lee. And it kind of delves into, it kind of, it doesn't always hit the mark, but it does delve into a lot of the gray area in dealing with, you know, certain feelings you have. You know, Ben Affleck's character is very much, he's hearing things about things she's done in her past that's making him uncomfortable while all the time it's like, you know, more and more it kind of hints that his best friend actually has romantic interest in him, but is repressing those feelings. And I, I think it's just a great you know, telling of stories that are kind of impactful to the community, especially Kevin Smith, not being a part of the community. So him doing, going out of his way to represent these characters is great. But also I think it was the first film of his that actually took his style and added an actual depth to a narrative instead of just being, you know, a comedy or a general comedy with crude humor. All right. Sounds good. Rachel, what about you?
1: I'm going to pick my own private Idaho, which is a Gus Van Sant film. So keeping with the theme of this episode And it has, as its highlight, performances from a very young Keanu Reeves and a very young River Phoenix. And they play, well, really River Phoenix is the protagonist. And he's a young man working as a hustler at the time. And he's developing his own identity and growing into himself. And it's a Shakespearean film almost. And I think I saw it in a film class and it always stuck out to me. And I really hope you check it out.
0: It is a great film, actually. I think um I would go with Drugs or a Cowboy, but I would say that um and Private Idaho is like a close second. That's my favorite uh Gus Sant film. Excellent film for sure. For me, I'm gonna go uh I'm gonna keep stick in the nineties. Um I'm gonna go with Happy Together by Kar Wai, who's also one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. Uh the film stars Tony Lung and Leslie the late Leslie Chung. Um it's about uh a gay couple who are basically experiencing their lapsing in their relationship and how their hearts are kind of heading in another direction. And I feel like it's an interesting, it's an interesting film within the, um, the new queer cinema movement, because you start off with what a lot of these films are trying to fight towards, like, you know, equality and a relationship. But in this film, you basically see like any other relationship, um, you know, you can experience heartbreak as well. And, you know, uh, these two souls who were uh at one point life partners uh, basically drifting apart and it's a very heartbreaking film to to watch but i mean it's one car why it's pretty much guaranteed to be fantastic all right so thank you so much for taking part in our special pride episode uh tune in next episode for, for some more cinematic goodness that was the k-cut now we are going into the l-cut